Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Gleaton Clotten Globin. That is French for I can't wait for the next Stick to Wrestling podcast. And I want to thank my friends in Def Leppard for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I am John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone podcast. It's the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the people's podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcasts. Before we get rolling, I want to encourage everyone to follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has wrestlers fighting with chairs in his avatar. I don't 100% stick to wrestling. I just trash the Orioles' Chris Davis on Twitter, but usually I stick to wrestling. Also, if you have not joined our Facebook group yet, you want to do that. Bunch of cool guys talking wrestling. We were talking about where Paul Orndorff had disappeared to in 1983 last night. And it was something I'd been wondering about for a long time. And I got my answer from this group. So free to join. And if it sucks, just quit. Hey, no problem. The last two weeks, we have talked about 1980, the 1980 wrestling awards, uh, wrestler of the year, tag team of the year, et cetera. We're going to do that for 1990 starting today. And I'm going to bring on the person who I practically co-wrote, it feels like, the 1990 Wrestling Observer Yearbook with John Muse. John, thank you for coming on. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. This is going to be fun. It's definitely going to be fun. I mean, I, I told you this before we were on the, on the air. I was like, okay, I want to do this show. Who should I invite on? And I'm like referencing the awards. And I keep seeing your name. I'm like, he would be perfect. I, I couldn't wait to have you back after having you on last time. We had, we had a good time. Oh, yeah, for sure. That was, that was definitely a great uh, talk we had. Yeah. And, and, you know, Jamie Ward, we recorded the last recording we did with him. Jamie, he came out with, I thought, the essence of stick to wrestling. He was like, John, it's been like a year since we just hung out and talked about wrestling. And it was fun. Thank you. And that's what stick to wrestling is. We're just hanging out, having fun, talking wrestling. And John is a really cool, knowledgeable guy to do it with. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and, and, and you're the best, too, I tell you. Well, thank you, sir. All right. What the best angle of 1990, John, I threw this at you today because I thought of one of the best angles I ever saw happened in 1990. But first, I'd like to hear your best angle. I came down to two. I'll pick one at the end. The first one was the horseman turning on sting at the start of the year early on. They set it up perfectly with, you know, the horseman, you know, sting and beaten flair. And, and they went through the whole, I think that was Starcade, right? Yes. And they more or less read him the riot act, kicked him out of the horsemen. So that was one of my big ones. And then the other one was at the, towards the end of the year with undertaker, just simply because he comes out in its instant. He's big period. End of story. The guy's going to be a big deal, you know, coming out. And, and there's very few things that in wrestling have that immediate reaction like that, where, you know, it's huge. So I'm probably going to settle with undertaker. I think at the end of the day. All right. I think the undertaker, I mean, I had heard about what they were going to do. I don't know, a few weeks before they debuted him, but I knew that they had signed Mark Calloway and they were going to give him a gimmick that was going to be every bit as big they thought as the million dollar man. And it might've even been bigger. So that's a good choice. As far as the horseman turn goes, what was really cool about that is they got curveball. They thought Tully Blanchard was coming in on that day and they had an angle set up and my understanding is Tully got a fax of the contract and the contract was not what he agreed to verbally with Jim Hurd and Tully instead of just signing it said, Hey, I'm not coming. So they had to put together something last minute and that's what made it so good because it was, it was almost unscripted. All these, all just interrupts flair. And it's like, no, it's as simple. You're out. And it looked, <laughs> it looked real. And Speaking of angles that looked real, I mean, I thought one of the greatest things I ever saw as a wrestling fan was at the Memphis TV studio. This was either June, I think it was June 1990, and I heard about it before I saw it because I got Memphis tapes every four weeks, and I found out about it, the whole thing, before I, I got to see it. But they were having their, their normal Memphis TV show with uh, Jerry Lawler, who's a heel, 
sitting down talking about whatever with Lance Russell and out wanders a guy named the snowman and snowman starts talking about how, you know, black people don't get treated right in Memphis and black wrestlers never get a chance. And the whole thing looked so helter skelter. It looked completely, it looked like this guy just walked out on the live show without anyone's permission. And it was phenomenal. And I remember reading about in the observer and he's like, okay, if this was real, you're just never going to hear about it again. But if it was a work, they're going to integrate the storyline. And they did. But that one television episode, I mean, now I know for 20 years, the fake shoot angles have been ridiculous and overdone. But this was the original one, for me at least. And it was an all-time great, in my opinion. Good call. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't get a lot of Memphis tapes back then. I got some. But I do yeah. remember that. And it was, it was kind of big and a surprise, for sure. That's yeah. a good call. And you know what? I'm going to talk a lot about Memphis during these shows. And I understand, look, you know, either you lived in the area, you got the tapes, which was tough in 1990, or you just didn't see it. And and that's fine, because I I do understand that there's a big difference between, you know, WWF and the NWA, which is on national cable. And Memphis is kind of small time compared to that. But I thought that was the best angle of the year. How about the worst angle, John? Ooh, um... I, I would probably lean Black Scorpion just because there was no payoff, right? Yeah. Magic tricks, magic tricks, and no payoff. On the credits, on one of the Clash of the Champions, they had they credited the magician who was doing the the magic tricks for the Black Scorpion. I'm like, how ridiculous and over the top, <laughs> you know, exposing the business is this? I mean, come on. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I was leaning prior, you know, when we discussed earlier too on on RoboCop because that was just horrible beyond horrible at times but they didn't actually run months off of the robocop no uh, <laughs> robocop is stunningly awful i guess it was one thing to have sting out there with robocop it was the other thing to have robocop back down arn anderson or have arn <laughs> anderson be afraid of this thing right uh the, you, you know, you know I, it's peter weller i mean you know it's an actor in the or was it Peter Weller? Did they actually get, they did, didn't they? I, you know what? I don't think he actually showed up in Washington, D.C. I could be wrong. Okay. I don't but know. Yeah. I mean, you can't sell for a, a actor or whatever it would be inside a suit that you know is phony. But they did it anyway. Yes. That was for Return of RoboCop 3. And I'll stop not sticking to wrestling in a minute, but I remember coming home and seeing the, t- the television review on Channel 4 in Boston by this woman, Joyce Colhaywick, who reviewed the movies. And she looked into the camera and she said, I did not like this movie. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and she Ouch. tore it apart. But anyway, I thought the worst angle, it, the, the angle wasn't bad. The angle itself wasn't bad. But the idea behind it was bad. And that was the four horsemen turning on sting because really? flair flair and arn were over like crazy Oli was over like crazy and the fans were doing the you know the we're not worthy worship thing as they're coming to the ring and flair the booker decides he wants to be a heel anyway and this led to the return of the four horsemen which in my opinion was the last thing that wcw needed when they brought barry Windham, they brought in sid vicious and they combined them with Flair and Anderson to redo the Horsemen. The Horsemen had already been done to death. And we had less than a two-year break from the Horsemen. And now we're already back. Now, you can argue that if Sting is your lead babyface, he's already got four guys lined up as challengers. But I knew it wasn't going to work, and it, it didn't work. When they did Sid versus Sting at Halloween Havoc, there wasn't any real interest in it, and it didn't do a good buy rate. So I think I think that led to a lot of bad things happening. Just my opinion. Okay. No, no, that's that's definitely valid. I like the angle itself, but when you weigh in the payoff, yeah, I can yeah. I can see that point. I mean, I just remember. Yeah, no, I can I can see your point on that one because the payoff. I I like the the heat that it generated. Of course, Sting went and blew his knee out, right? Yeah. Um, so that kind of threw plans asunder because then then you're you're looking at no baby face and and you're going back now in history yeah and and uh, obviously it made it way worse that the very night that they turn the horseman sting blows out his knee i mean 
I was cracking up when Ole Anderson just like went out on his own and fired Sting on, from the Horseman. It looked so spontaneous, but the idea behind it, I did not like. That's fair. All right. Rookie of the year. Now, this is kind of a laugher. Our candidates, I'm going by Pro Wrestling Illustrated here because it's hard to define a wrestling rookie. Steve Austin, El Gigante, Brad Anderson, Chris Chavis, and Larry Oliver. John, who did you pick? Oh, yeah, this is like the no-brainer. Even back then, it was the obvious pick was Austin. Yeah. Even back then, it's not even with the, you know, knowing what ended up happening. No, I mean, he was the the cream of the crop. He was doing really well in world-class championship wrestling. He had Future Star written all over him. And he, he signed with World Championship Wrestling not long into 1991. I think he signed in January. And there were people who were like, he's not ready. And I'm like, well, I think he's more ready than that. And by the time he's ready, the WWF's going to want him. You got to sign him now if you're WCW. Right. And they put the TV title on him right away. They pushed him right away. So it's not like he, you know, he was ready. That's all there was to it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that happens a lot in wrestling. And I, I don't necessarily understand it sometimes is the idea of, well, they're not ready. And, you know, you can make them ready. You, you can work on them and you, you know, part of your job in the creative side is to hide weaknesses. And if you think somebody's not ready, but you think they could be, then you simply work around the things you think they're not ready at and hide them as much as you can. But you run with somebody you think could do it. If you yeah. think they're going to be able to do it, you know, obviously day one, you don't, but you, you got to think about, you know, how can I, how can I, if I think they are for that future role, they could be big. How do I get them there as quickly as possible? We're going to talk more about that as this podcast goes on, because I have a guy I want to talk about a little bit later that he's not ready, but let's get him ready. Let's put him in a position to succeed. And I actually think 1991 WCW did a good job with Steve Austin with that. They gave him a valet. They actually gave him two valets and they gave him the TV title and they didn't stretch his ability. They just put him in a spot that he was ready for. All right. Next up, most charismatic. John, who did you have as the most charismatic wrestler of 1990? At that point in 90, it still has to be, you know, Hogan. He was still the guy that got the most with the least. Now you see, wow, because my guy is someone who I think got the most out of the least. He could not wrestle to save his life. He could not talk. His interviews were completely incoherent. And yet the, w- <laughs> yet the WWF chose him to replace Hulk Hogan, and that's Ultimate Warrior. I mean, charisma is hard to describe, but he had an it factor, and he really had nothing else. Hogan, I could definitely see going with Hogan, but since Warrior, Hogan, I thought, had more going for him than Warrior. So in a way, that makes Warrior more charismatic, if that makes sense. I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I mean, your number one and two were, were those two guys. Oh, definitely. At the end of the day, just a matter which way you kind of flipped them. Yeah, Sting, I think, would be a distant number three. Maybe, yeah. maybe Savage. I don't know. Yeah, and, and, and at that point, you'd even have to wonder about Sid, where Sid was, because Sid got a lot for nothing, too. That's, you know, Sid is really charismatic. You're right. He's, he had a good build, and a, he had a good look, so did Warrior, but he didn't have anything else. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, Sid. We're, We're going to talk in, a, lot about, a lot of bad tonight. Uh, look, 1990 was a year that things started to really go backward in wrestling. And I'm not saying that subjectively. I mean, houses went way down. Pay-per-view buy rates went down. Ratings went down. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for it. It's because a lot of bad happened. Yes. Not all bad. <laughs> but speaking of bad... Let's go with an observer category. Most obnoxious. John, who did you have? You know, I don't remember what I voted for at the time, so I wish I would have kept all that stuff. But you're probably looking at at still Vince, you know, the what a match and and just the Vince Vince, right? The way he is. I know Warrior got a lot of votes at the time, too, as well. But I'd probably lean, lean Vince. Herb Abrams would have to be a candidate. Herb Abrams was something else. And Vince, Vince was absolutely peaking in his, his obnoxiousness. Like when he would 
be on Saturday night's main event. I'm talking like this. But at the end of the day, I went with Gorilla Monsoon. And let me give you a reason why you should join our group. This week, Brent Nicholas in our Facebook group said Gorilla was the voice of my childhood. He was and is my comfort food. And I totally get that. If you were 8, 10, 14 years old watching primetime wrestling, enjoying Gorilla's shtick, hey, that's cool. I was the bitter 24, 25-year-old who had the wrestling I loved grabbed out of my hands and replaced by whatever WWF was doing in 1990. And Gorilla just came across as that know-it-all middle school history teacher that was just condescending to everyone around him. I did not like Gorilla Monsoon at all. I can see that. And I'm just a few years younger. Don't have as much of the history with WWF as you do. But what I saw from Gorilla is, you know, he would make these clever, funny comments and Gorilla would be there to kind of like, you know, throw them away, kick them off to the side. And I kind of resented that because um, that was good. It was good material. Hina would throw out him, and, and Gorilla was always like the wet blanket. <laughs> oh, you stop. <laughs> <laughs> I always, they did it every week and it made me laugh every week. Gorilla Monsoon would smile and say, hello, everyone. Welcome to primetime wrestling. I'm Gorilla Monsoon. And Bobby would be like, and I'm your host, Bobby Heenan. It got me yeah. every time. All right, John, worst major wrestling show. What was your pick? I think the universe demands that the pick is Clash 13, right? Yeah. (laughs) I look back on that, and I remember it and hated every minute of it. There's very little redeeming qualities about that show. No, and um, the, the worst part about it, well, there's a couple of worst parts about it. Number one, okay, so you have this valuable thing. You are on prime time cable television, WTBS national cable. So you want to take advantage of this opportunity, right? No, Ole Anderson booking WCW decides that he wants to have a kind of a souped up television show. Like this wasn't any better than an episode of NWA pro wrestling or the Saturday night, six Oh five show, except it was a little bit longer. Everything looks completely rushed. The matches were like all three, four minutes, there was a bunch of squashes. Instead of having squashes in some cases, they had glorified jobbers like the Motor City Madman and Magnum Force, the Night Stalker. They would bring in indie guys and, and try to make it look like they were important. Yeah, it. I had to look up, because I'd forgotten when I, I looked over the show and I, and I saw the results. I remember the show being really bad and I looked over the results and I'm just like, who was that person? Well, who was that person? <laughs> And, and I had to look up. I'm, I'm Googling, trying to remember. Oh, yeah, that was, you know, poor Ted Petty got thrown into one of the roles. You know, they had all these just random people. And, and you're like, how do you sell that? And yeah. the answer is you really can't. It didn't do much to, I mean, Starcade uh, 90 was coming up uh, maybe five weeks after the show. They did nothing to build that up. And on top of everything, now the main event we're going to get more into this later, but of course they have to have a little bit of a racist thing going on where if Butch Reed loses, Teddy long has to be Ric Flair's chauffeur for a day. Now, given what they had been doing over the summer with junkyard dog and Rocky King, I thought it was time to be a little bit more careful with that stuff. And they weren't. Yeah, they were horrible. There's really no other way to describe some of the stuff they were doing there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, uh, like we'll get into the JYD stuff later, but again, that was just a, a terrible show. It was an opportunity completely lost. It was almost like Ole Anderson was doing the George Scott thing where he doesn't want to give anything away on TV. And it's like, look, it's 1990. Things are changed. You give stuff away on TV. For sure. And, and, and like you said earlier, with Starcade coming up, it's very hard to draw anything from that show as to building to Starcade, trying to sell it anything of a you know forward view there's nothing about it it's a standalone throwaway show exactly it didn't nothing led into it nothing came out of it it was it was and it it wasn't like a good show just to sit down and watch yeah you'd almost think it'd be somebody that you know either didn't know much about booking or just didn't care or there had been a change and somebody's got to throw something together while they try to figure out what they're going to do 
it's just there's there's no rhyme or reason to it. No, I, I think by this point, Ole didn't care anymore. It, it, it definitely looked like he didn't care anymore. Yeah, he's just phoning it in. Let's just create some guys and, and throw a show out there. <laughs> All right. Well, on to more positive things. Best wrestling show. Now, in The Observer, their rule was December 89 through the end of November 1990 because Dave needed uh, time to process ballots and all that stuff, which makes sense. We're doing January 1st, 1990 through December 31st, 1990. But both John and I, or John, I don't mean to speak for you, but I picked Starcade 89 in The Observer. I thought that was a really good show. Yes, that's where I would have landed too if, if we were taking in uh, Dave's timeline on that. It would have definitely been Starcade. It, it just. I don't know how you felt about the show at the time, but it felt to me, it snuck up on you. You know, you knew you had your round robin thing going on, but you didn't know you saw potential there, but you didn't exactly expect what you got. And it turned out to be really good in, in tournaments are usually that way where if you just have the right people in it, you don't have to do a lot of trickery work. You just let the matches happen and usually it works out. And it really did. It feels like sometimes you and I are the only ones who like that event because I remember right after there was a lot of complaining about it. And, uh, you know, obviously it's been over 30 years and that, that 30 years hasn't fixed it. But to me, it felt like a real sporting event where they had actual rules. They had real winners in both tournaments. People complained that Muda got buried. Hey, someone had to take the losses and it just wasn't Ric Flair, Sting or Lex Luger. Plus, they were planning on turning Muda anyway, so he could afford to absorb the losses. I didn't think that was a big deal. Yeah, I, I wasn't as bothered by it either because I also, if, if you look at the different people, Muda, you can get, like you said, with a turn coming or whatever, you can also just, he's so easy to build back up. He's got the yeah. right look. He works great. So crisp, fluid. You know, he's one of those guys where in that situation, you're going to be able to come back and get whatever you need to get him back built up. You know, you're, you're not going to have a problem with Muda. I didn't have a problem with it. And I thought a lot of the matches were good. That's another point. I thought the, the matches themselves were really good. And you could come out of, the, out of that saying, okay, Muda is really good. He's just not at the flair Luger sting level, which I kind of think that's the case. And at least, at least in us wrestling, he just doesn't have the absolute top of the ladder star power that those guys had. Correct. And, and, and the other thing, too, when you think about it is, is that at the end of the day, everybody would have expected, you know, Moon is going to go back home and be a big deal there, whereas Flair, Sting, Luger are going to be left here. Um, and that's exactly people, what happened. Yeah. And, and people don't always understand that. They think that whatever works in Japan, or well, I don't say whatever works, but, you know, whatever prestige is in Japan is necessarily equal here. And, and it doesn't always work that way. It can, but it doesn't always work that way. And, and especially back in 1990, you know, Muda is going to be a bigger deal at home. And when he, he's going to go back home. So I, I didn't have a problem with that. The work was good. The matches were good. And, and that's what I was, you know, believe me, I love Mudo over in Japan. Oh, um, same here. Oh yeah. I loved him here, but Oh yeah. And loved him here too. It just, you can understand by the decisions they made of, of what they did was okay. I mean, it, it made sense. I remember seeing, uh, what was it? Battle of the belts Two uh, was on in syndication here. And this guy I'd never heard of the white ninja against, I think it was against Tim Horner for some junior heavyweight championship. And the guy blew me away. I'd never seen, I, I it was Muda obviously, but I, I was not expecting this. I'm like, wow, this guy's like tiger mask. Yeah. Oh, for sure. He he's so good. He's a he's still going today. Yeah, he is. But the now the year the actual year of 1990. What do you think the best wrestling show was? Best major wrestling show. It would have to be the Bash, right? It would have to be uh, you know Great American Bash in July. It had the Midnight Express Southern Boys match. You know, and and they had the big uh, satisfying finale, Sting beating Flair. You know, so that- I think you have to go there. Yeah, that was really cool, too, the fact that Sting kind of gave a nod to Flair on the way out, which I think did more good for him than harm, you know, because Ric Flair has his audience. Um, That, to me, that show was number two, and it was a really good show, don't get me wrong. I went with WrestleWar 90 because I loved the Ric Flair versus Lex Luger match, and it just reminded you how good Ric Flair was. I mean, not that you really needed a reminder, but he was so phenomenal. 
and it had a great Midnight Express versus Rock and Roll Express match. The Midnight Express were criminally underutilized in 1990 until Jim Cornette and Stan Lane finally just got sick of it all and walked out. Yeah, it's they didn't get respected very well there. No, it was like, uh, well, uh, uh, what is it? A, a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, they didn't think the Midnight Express were worth what they were paying them, so they made sure they weren't worth what they were paying them. Yes, that's another one of those bad sort of philosophies, along with the idea of, well, if we're paying them a lot, we'll push them commensurate to their pay when they may not be worth it. Exactly. And then, other, then the opposite of, like you said, where, well, we think we're overpaying them, so we're going to diminish them so we can pay them less, even yeah. though they're really good. I mean, there there was so much that could have been done with them, and we'll talk more about the Midnight's later. Most underrated. Now, by underrated, we are talking about a wrestler who deserved a lot more of a push than he got. John, who did you have? I went with Tommy Rogers. That's a good pick. And I think the the November show in 1990, when uh, the Tom Robinson benefit weekend, uh-huh. um, he was on that one and. You know, I'm like, how's this guy not, he's so good. How's he not someplace regular, you know, in, in something more being made of him. And, and I never understood that. And he's just so good. Every, he was, his timing was good. He was crisp with his moves. He knew how to fire up. He just was on a small side in the wrong era. He was, I was about to say, Tommy Rogers was small, but he was a good looking guy. He had a good physique. And he was a fan, a, pardon the pun, fantastic wrestler. But he, he's someone where there's a lot of wrestlers out there where you're like, man, you know, he should have gotten or he could have gotten a Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry, a Ricky Morton type break where you put the right guy in the right tag team and you're getting something out of him. And Tommy Rogers was a guy, if I'm running WCW, I sign him and I figure something out what to do with him. Like, all right, find another guy like him and get this tag team rolling. You know, get my marketing department to come up with a name for him. Oh, for sure. He'd be on that list of guys of, I need to find something for him because I know he can do almost anything I need to do if I find the right role for him. And he's going to give me good matches. Exactly. It's kind of a no brainer. Yeah. Now, one guy, I, we had already mentioned Bobby Eaton. Bobby Eaton won the most underrated in the Wrestling Observer newsletter. I think Bobby Eaton is properly rated or was properly rated. He was the workman of an important tag team in the Midnight Express. After he left the Midnight Express, he was part of the TV title chase. I think that's kind of Bobby's ceiling. And I say that I love Bobby Eaton. I was a huge fan of his. But I cannot see putting the NWA title on him. I can't see putting the U.S. title on him. It's just it, he he reached his ceiling. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. In in how underrated are you when you're considered one half of one of the best tag teams of like history, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know he was over the Midnight Express were over as much as they could be. They're world tag team champions. So I, I just don't see it. If it was January first, nineteen ninety one. I would have told you that Brian Pillman was the most underrated. They did very little with him in 1990. We talked a little bit about bringing a guy up or making a guy ready. If I'm running the show, I have my eyes set on Brian Pillman becoming eventually, perhaps becoming my world's heavyweight champion. And I'm serious. He was a little bit short, but you could make that work to your advantage. He was a good looking guy, good physique legit athletic background and he was an excellent worker he had the fire he could do it all but do you right away do you make him nwa champion you can't do that he's not ready i'm looking at a path towards that and that path would be put the united states title on brian pillman and let's talk about that for a minute lex now sometimes you put a title on a wrestler to help the wrestler get over or you put the title on a wrestler to help get the title get over, right? Yeah. Luger no longer needed the U.S. title, and the U.S. title didn't need Lex Luger. Neither one was doing the other one any good. This would have been a case where by putting the title on Pillman, you're telling the fans, hey, take him seriously, and if they buy him as U.S. champion, then start thinking about making him world champion. If they don't, if he 
doesn't get over in that role, okay, you tried and it just didn't happen. Yes, and I'll tell you my philosophy on belts. Um, okay, I want to hear this. You, you kind of hit it right there with what you said about Luger as an example. I think what WCW fell into a pattern with was the idea that, well, you know, it's a guy who could be the world champion. He's got that high enough stature. I need to appease him or try to make him sell the belt or him sell the matchup, but appease the person in their position by giving them some of these titles. My opinion on titles is similar to what you said, but also it's, it's more or less as a progression, right? Mm-hmm. You, you've got to bring people along. And if you've established credibility behind your belts, and I mean all belts, right? All belts should be important. If you've established belts as being credible, then by giving the people that lower belt, it shows a sign of progression. And if a person can, you know, unless you luck into somebody who's automatically just great, has a look, they're ready to be a world champion, and you can rush them into that, you know, that doesn't always happen. So what you need is you need that secondary layer of belts to show this person is moving up through the process. Yes. There's a momentum because wrestling's about momentum and energy. So you have to move forward with those things. Belts are your mechanism. If you don't have your belts, you're just what storyline progression for people that doesn't necessarily show that their career, which is what everybody's supposed to be focusing on here is their career as wrestlers. They're moving up, they're getting belts. You have to have credibility behind the belts and then you have to show progression for the talent and momentum through the stages. Completely agreed. And Winning the United States title established Magnum TA as a star. Nikita Koloff winning the United States title established him as a star. Lex Luger winning it in 1987 established him as a star. It basically, the fans started buying these guys as potential future world's heavyweight champions. And that's what I would have wanted to do by putting the title on Brian Pillman, who is one of your best talents. And they just wouldn't acknowledge that. Right. And, and, and he's a good pick on your part. And, and to add to this, this topic we're kind of on on this, if you take that secondary layer and you put it back onto a Luger or, you know, a Nikita or, you know, Magnum, even though Magnum, unfortunately, his accident stopped his, you know, his career. If you put the title, that second title back on somebody who had already been established, and it's almost a step down if you think about it in a way you put them into that position for them to lose to a Pillman because it establishes them. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And it's almost like, you know, as time went on, WCW lost track of what you and I are talking about. The belt just became, uh, I don't know, just this thing that the rest of the war into the ring. Yeah. It, it becomes a prop and WWE is doing that a lot. Now it, it's, you know, to them, it's, it's just a prop. And then what you hurt yourself by doing that, is how do you then establish new stars if you take if you take one of your props and kind of making it less important? It, it hurts the idea of momentum and progression. And you know, part of what makes somebody is the battles for the prize. And if your prize is meaningless, it's just a battle. Yeah, you know, you understand this. I understand this. I mean, you know, when Magnum and Nikita were feuding over the United States title, I mean you knew that title meant everything to them, or at least, you know, storyline, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yes. And you, and you knew that both guys were going to be moving upward from that, mm-hmm. you know, so you knew that there was going to be more beyond that. I mean, they're battling for this belt because it means something and whoever wins this is eventually even the loser to a degree, but the outcome of that was they were going to move eventually on to other things and bigger things. Yeah, I mean, Magnum T.A. winning the United States title in 1985 immediately brought his star up to a point where he he was having matches up and down the East Coast with, with Ric Flair. Then Nikita yeah. Koloff wins the title. Magnum has the accident. And Nikita is already established as a big enough star to challenge Ric Flair. And both the U.S. and Intercontinental titles, somewhere along the line in the early to mid-90s, that all went away. Yeah. Yeah. They, ah. they diminished the belts and, and they, they lost, you know, they, I don't know. They lost the prestige, I guess you'd say, but they just, they lost the, the reason they exist. Yes. To some degree. Now looking back now, you know, I'm saying January 1st, 1991, I would have taken Pillman looking back. The most underrated guy, 1990 was Cactus Jack. 
I mean, he he was a phenomenal bumper. He could talk. <laughs> yeah. I knew he could talk because I saw him in Memphis. And now we see what he established in his career. And it's like, this guy had it. We just didn't see it. Well, a lot of people did see it. You saw it. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it. <laughs> a lot of people saw it, right? But this goes back to something we talked about earlier, where somebody somewhere decided what? He's not ready. Yeah. Right? Somebody you, you, decided he wasn't ready. We saw him in November at the Tom Robinson benefit again. I'll, I'll bring that up probably more than once. But we saw him there, and we're like, why isn't he somewhere? Yeah. And, and the answer is people who are blinded. They're not thinking of the idea of, you know what, this guy's good. I'm going to be able to get him over easy. You know, I don't know if it was like, well, they, he just looks too rugged or he didn't fit the traditional, you know, massive muscular physique or who knows. But the whole point is he was good. It's just at the end of the day, you knew. Yeah, he, he had a good look. He knew what he was doing in the ring. He, he could do great interviews. I mean, I, I can tell you why when, by the way, we were mentioning this. I mean, I have been in person. I've been in front of with John Muse exactly once. It was November 1990, and we, we talked a lot. I can tell you he wasn't in the WWF because of his physique, and that's their blind spot, especially during that time. I mean, the only guys they had in 1990 who were not completely jacked up were one man gang and dusty roads. Everyone else was, you know, was jacked up. What can I say? And all yeah. just didn't see what Ole Anderson was the booker. And he just didn't see what we saw in cactus Jack. And once again, by the time Ole was the, at the end of his run, like you said, John, he was just phoning it in. Yeah. It's the definition of phoning it in. <laughs> all right. Most overrated. The wrestler who got the push that made you say what? John, 1990, who was it for you? I don't remember who I really voted for. I didn't have a comment, I don't think, on this one. But probably, he had the charisma. It would have been Sid or Warrior, probably, I would have think. You know, just because they were getting pushed high, they were getting that big push. I saw, like, in The Observer that I think was a Dino Bravo and Earthquake were, were four and five. But I don't know. It's not like they were being pushed to the top. Earthquake did have a run with Hogan, but he fit the Hogan mold, right? The big guy comes in, hurts Hogan, then Hogan's got to vanquish the, the latest monster, right? So I understood Earthquake there. I'd go with Warrior or Vicious, probably Lean Warrior, just because, again, the work rate just wasn't there. Earthquake was another guy who was not jacked. I forgot about him. So that's, that's three guys. That's okay. um, my pick, ultimately, I never understood how this guy got any kind of a push and they, they just kept pushing him hard, the WWF with Dino Bravo. And the guy had nothing. Oh, okay, had... so Bravo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, you know, granted, he looked like he spent a whole lot of time on the bench, and he looked like, you know, he had some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, some pharmaceutical help doing that. <laughs> uh, I mean, he had a, a really, you know, I don't even know whether, whether they called him built. He had this, like, like weird physique. He had this ridiculous look with the blonde hair. He, English was his second language. I never understood why he was even employed, never mind protected and pushed as much as he was. I got you. Okay. So, so <laughs> okay. So I, I looked at it as I didn't really see him getting, he got a push, but I didn't see him as getting much of a push. Your thing is he should just have no push. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, they, okay. like I said, they protected him. They, they, they did. you know, he, he was high up on the card all the time. You're right. He, he never had a run with Hogan, but then again, I, I don't think the guy ever did jobs. At least in 1990, he wasn't doing them. I mean, wasn't there some sort of tie because he had the Montreal tie to the business there? So maybe they kept him on because they were still trying to, I mean, at this point, 90, though, it would be way late for that. Yeah, I know that for a while there, Vince wanted the the Montreal guys because he was still trying to run Montreal. But we're talking years after the fact. Yeah, why why did he have uh, any kind of push at that point? I don't know. It, 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 I mean, just every time the guy was on TV, I was wondering, can't they utilize this TV time more productively? I don't know. Ah, no, sure. worst gimmick, John. What, in your opinion, was the worst gimmick of 1990? Well, they're all bad. Um, these ones are all bad. There were so you know, many had, bad ones. There, there were so many bad ones. I, you know, the easy pick is the gobbledygooker, right? That's the easy pick, but that to me, he didn't do much beyond things. It'd either be Saba Simba or Scorpion, just because I didn't like the way Saba Simba was portrayed. Yeah. Um, 
Black Scorpion got a much longer push with no payoff. Wow. I don't know. And then you have the Master Blasters. It's just all bad. I don't know what to say. If I had to pick one bad out of that, uh, I'll go Scorpion just because of how long it took for no payoff. But you you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, the gobbledygooker won it in the Observer. But let's be honest. He, he came out of the egg. He danced around in a goofy costume, and that was the last we saw of him. And my yeah. mind was blown because the the original plan, I have to take you guys back. They made a big deal about this egg being at this giant egg being at the Survivor Series and what's going to happen with this giant egg. They spent weeks building it up. And what was originally supposed to happen was that the Undertaker was supposed to come kicking and screaming out of this egg. And they yeah, changed. I remember Mark Callis being the topic, right? Yes. And what was I going to say? At the last minute, they decided that this would be too frightening for young children, kind of like Dr. Seuss books. So they changed it last minute, and th- that's what came out of it. But, but again, you know, to me, it was goofy, but no harm done. Scorpion. It wasn't last minute. It wasn't I'm, last minute, though. Really? Well, it was at least a few weeks out, because I got a story for you now. Okay. This is the Tom Robinson weekend. If you recall, Cherry Funk, there was times when Cherry Funk was around, right? Uh-huh. Cherry Funk has, has this habit where when he would try to pass messages to people, he would say names or say things. And I think he did this a lot with Dave, but I've seen him do it other places too. So that weekend, he kept saying Hector Guerrero to people. Huh. And that was, that was who the gobbledygooker was. So I think at least as of the Tom Robinson benefit weekend, Cherry Funk knew. Okay. Huh. Well, and Funk wasn't even with the WWF. I, I'm sure he had a relationship with Guerrero, but I, I, okay. I did not know that. I, I, maybe it wasn't last minute, but I do know the original plan was that the undertaker was coming out of that egg, but you're right. Yeah. We're, we're talking, I think the, that show was the ninth and the survivor series was like the 23rd, I want to say. So we're, we're yeah. looking at like 10, 15 days. Yeah. So a little All bit right. of advance. It, and I love the whole idea of, oh, well, we don't want to scare the kids. He still scared people. Yes, no he way. did. <laughs> I remember kids were like, oh, my God. It was a great gimmick. It was an absolutely phenomenal gimmick. Might as well go right on. And, and you, let me talk about Black Scorpion. Ole and the NWA caught lightning in a bottle when they first did the Black Scorpion angle. And I'm serious when I say this. I had people calling me left and right asking who it was going to be. And I didn't know. Oh, yeah. And eventually that turned into, I don't know. And they don't know either. They haven't figured it out yet, but you know, they generated interest and that clash special where they teased that they were going to show who the black scorpion was, did a great rating. So they had something there. They had something going. And of course they couldn't figure out what to do with it. I mean, tip- so typical NWA in 1990. Yeah, all they had to do was stick the landing on who the Black Scorpion was, and and they, they kind of dropped the ball on that. And that's because they started the idea out. They had a good idea, they just had no finish, and usually you work the other way. Exactly. You to know where you're going, so you know how to start. They had to start, but no end. You know, all they needed was a name. They, I don't, Terry Funk, somebody, they could have just come up with something, and then created history. I mean, wrestling creates history all the time that's not real. So I don't know why they just didn't create some sort of fake history and maybe use it to introduce somebody new. I don't know. But yeah, the the payoff just didn't work. No, it, it, it was insanely bad. I mean, you know, this is story of WCW or, or the NWA in 1990. And you're right. They could have used that to bring in someone new. When they did the angle, they tried to make it look like the ultimate warrior was coming in. They were dropping hints like Sting. Remember Tulsa, you know, and (laughs) the the ultimate warrior is WWF champion. And while I don't know about, you know, I can't tell you, oh, yeah, I've seen his contract with the WWF. but I'm sure he had one. You know, so why are you teasing that? But, yeah, I mean, I, I would have at the end of the day brought in someone new, anyone just pick a wrestler who has potential. And there are plenty of guys out there. And just have him come on, you know, after Starcade laughing. Hey, Sting, Tulsa? Nice swerve, huh? Yeah, anything. They could have even done it with somebody they currently had in the promotion. It didn't have to be anybody new. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you only have to have the payoff make sense in the end. And the sense could have been it was a swerve to distract you, to somehow beat you, 
and it be somebody unexpected maybe that would, was already there, anything that would be something other than the same guy Sting had been facing for years. <laughs> only only to, to drop the angle and to act like the angle never happened after Starcade. It was horrible. All right. Best gimmick. John, I think I know yours. Yeah, you know mine, Undertaker. It's it's got to be that you know, like I said earlier, you rarely have something that the second you see it, you go, oh my god, it's big. And yeah. that was just one of them. He just walked out, and they still ended up, you know, adding Paul Bear to it, made it even better from there. But you just saw him, and you knew it was going to be a big a big thing. What about you? I mean, I have to go with the Undertaker. I mean, like you said, right out of the box, you knew this was going to be this was going to be a big gimmick. My personal favorite gimmick, and it, it didn't draw big money, but it was it was good middle to middle top of the card stuff was Rick Martell as the model. Every time he came okay. on TV, he cracked me up. <laughs> yeah. For comedy, uh, yes. I, I thought you were going to go with Michael Wall Street, but yeah. Uh, Mar- Martell was just, he had that good, funny, smarmy kind of thing about him, and, and it was fine, yeah. Another one I liked... And I admit this wasn't popular with a lot of people, but when Lanny Poffo became the genius and they teamed him up with Mr. Perfect, I thought that was phenomenal. I mean, please don't even take this wrong, but like Lanny always had this kind of, okay, is he gay thing about him? Uh, Like, I don't don't know how else to put it, but you know, I've been asked a few times, like Lanny had been picked out. Hey, is he a little bit? And I'm like, I don't know. And now He's after, you know, years of being a baby face, he turns heel, he's on TV with Mr. Perfect, and he's making eyes at Kurt Henning. And I thought it was the funniest thing in the world, because I knew there were thousands of people going, all right, that's it. I knew. I knew all along. So that I enjoyed it. And, the, and, the and I like the funny. fact that, to, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just said the poems were usually funny. Yes, the poems were good. It's funny that their idea of making somebody a heel was that he'd be smart and have poetry. <laughs> It's wrestling. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's too smart. Got to be a heel. Uh, the only thing that make him worse if he's not from the United States. That was that always killed me. Like you know, if you just have a guy from somewhere else, anywhere else, Canada, the fans would chant USA, USA during the entire match. Yeah, I never, uh, I've I've never understood that one either. It's just okay. I guess we got to have a problem with Canada now. <laughs> Um, it's the eighties. What are we going to do? <laughs> right. And, and the only time that that worked was Bret Hart when he pulled it off because he made it good. Yes, he did. Bret knew how to do that. He did. He knew how to be a baby face in Canada and what a baby face in Canada he was. And down here, we all hated him. Yeah. That was Except unbelievable. All right. Uh, let me see. Best gimmick, worst promotion of the year. Now this is again, 1990. The territories are either dead or dying, but John, what was your, I mean, so you've basically got two major league promotions and maybe three kind of minor league promotions to pick from John. What, in your opinion, was the worst promotion of the year? I think you have to kick AWA on the way out the door, right? You have to kick them for it. I, oh, I good them. point. I had you forgotten know, that AWA. Yeah. They were no longer putting on live shows by the end of the year. And I think, I think their television was gone by the end of the year. Yeah, they were doing that team challenge stuff, you know, that they started in what late '89. Remember Turkey on the pole or whatever that was. Yeah. Um, and then you know they had the teams, right? Zabisco's Legend or Larry's Legends. Then Sergeant Slaughter transferred his team to uh, worst angle of all time, maybe De Beers. And then what? We had Baron Rashke. Von Rashke uh, had a team, right? <laughs> Baron, who was like seventy years old. Yeah. You know, and they did they did like a that, football you know match what? and. All kinds of weirdness. You know what? I had completely, I, I, I'd I stopped watching the AWA, but just based on what you just said, I actually have to agree with you. I'm going to throw out my pick, but come until about two minutes ago, yesterday, I, I was with the WWF. I, I was okay. picking them. They suck. And then today I finally figured it out. I'm like, okay, number two behind AWA, it's got to be the NWA because I, as we stated they started off so hot and so promising, and by the end of the year, they were absolutely horrible, and it was hopeless. I mean, Dusty Rhodes was coming back. It was over. The NWO was never going to be good again. Yeah, and, and I think the struggle there to identify that 
that who was the worst is is indicative of the year the way it was. I mean, you had like you said earlier on, everything was kind of starting a decline. Everything was the bottom was fall you know was falling out of house business. All that stuff was on a just a drop, and it speaks to the fact that what good was there that year really when you think about it. It was not a good year, especially compared to 1989, which was an excellent year. Yeah. Well, oh, for yeah, the sure. NWA. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of work rate, just the, the Flair Steamboat and Flair Funk, and you had Muda coming in at that point. Oh, so good. Yeah. And, you know, everything was starting to feel fresh and new with the NWA. They finally got rid of the horsemen. They brought in an, an influx of new talent. And in 1990, I mean, it felt like they stopped doing that. And when the, when the territories collapsed, you no longer had a place for the NWA to grab upcoming talent. You know, there was no Calgary to get Brian Pillman out of. There was no you know Florida to, to get Lex Luger out of. And then the WWF, when the NWA started drying up, the WWF ran out of places to get guys from because that's, they were constantly raiding the NWA. Yeah, he made everything. Yeah, he he kind of he was a victim of his own, you know, doing by uh, wrecking the lower levels of development. Yeah, you know, I remember today too. I mean, nineteen ninety was finally the year the Road Warriors left for the WWF, and it's you know, and I I kind of said to myself, you know, they're going to run out of guys to raid, and they did. Oh yeah, yeah, because that year what WWF got Road Warriors, and I think Kerry went there too. Yep. So yeah. that's almost the, like the last of the big names of the remnants from the territories were, were finally making some of the moves. I mean, obviously you didn't have flair yet, but yeah, I mean, a lot of guys were jumping. That was the last gasp, I think in some ways. Yeah. Uh, it was flair. Here's who was left over flair. Who's getting older Luger, who probably was too much like Hogan, as we eventually found out, I guess. And sting, yeah. who I always thought would have been huge in the WWF. Yeah, yeah. If he had went earlier, he would have been huge there, and and you know we wouldn't have seen what we saw later when he finally went, where they had to make him a non non factor. Kerry Von Erich. Here's the one guy who I thought would have been way better off going to the NWA than the WWF, because the first thing the WWF does is they introduce him as the Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Erich, for the first couple of weeks, and then he's just the Texas Tornado. And if he's not Kerry Von Erich, I mean, you could have gotten any big muscular guy to be the Texas Tornado. If he's not Kerry Von Erich, he's just another guy. And I think the NWA's audience would have been more receptive as having him as Kerry Von Erich. And I think had they steered him in the right direction, I think you know what I'm talking about, and just kept things simple for him. He would have been big in the NWA. Like you could have had Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Erich main event to pay per view. Yeah, you could have gotten something out of him. Maybe if they would have thought earlier on and and tried to get him there, and maybe he could have been the Black Scorpion. I mean, you'd have to tie some weird history together to do that, but at least it'd be a person who wouldn't have been expected. Very true. I, I think he was still in the WWF until mid ninety one, though. But I yeah, mean, well, I'm talking about getting like him you said, he went. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, he was supposed to come in June or July. He was supposed to debut at a Clash of the Champions, and something went sideways. He wanted to finish up his dates in Memphis and Dallas, and the NWA like didn't want him to do it, and Kerry's like, well, I'm doing it. He went to the WWF instead. Yeah. Right. More yeah on would, you, you're right. They would, it would have made, made more sense and probably helped WCW more to have gotten Von Erich at the time. Yeah, he would have been more, Kerry would have been more valuable to the NWA and, and vice versa. I mean, in the WWF, he was just another guy. They, they did put the Intercontinental title on him, but that didn't work out. Right. Uh, anyway, so we did worst promotion of the year. How about best promotion of the year? John, in your opinion. Yeah, we did. We couldn't abstain, could we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wow. Oh, uh, if you have the start of the year, you're thinking WCW. Yeah. By they the were, end, it can't be. Right. So I, I, it's almost like W, but see, you don't want to give it to WWF, but then by default, you almost have to. I don't know. I, I'd probably lean WWF. I don't remember who I would have voted for a Japanese promotion at the time. So, and that would have made sense that, that, I mean, totally 
you know, th- this podcast, we, we tend to stick to American wrestling, uh, but New Japan in 1990 had a phenomenal year with the junior heavyweights, but All Japan had the big year with the heavyweights. So who would yeah. you go with out of those two? I went All Japan. All Japan All right. was to me. I always favored All Japan at the time a little bit more. Um, just because of, you know, you had Jumbo and Masawa and Kawada and Kamashi, et cetera, and you just go on. And, and in 90, real quick, and we'll get off of the Japanese topic, and what happened in 90 was Tenru had left, and then Baba realized he needed to change things, had Masawa beat Saruta, went to clean finishes, and just, then they just had gangbusters business, and their matches were always just great at the top. That was something that was really frustrating with All Japan, in the eighties was, you know, so many of their big matches ended in double countouts. And then, I mean, talk about, you know, just breaking kayfabe, but Baba just says, Hey, clean finishes in every match from now on. And you're right. It, it went over like crazy. Yeah. It changed everything for them. They had at one point, I you know in their main arena, you know, crack and hall, I think hundred something sellouts in a row. <laughs> and how many, how many seats does that hold? It's not a big arena, but, but in Japan, it's, it's considered a, you know, it's a good sized arena and it's, it's one of the hallowed halls, but yeah, hundred something sellouts in a row. Just when I went there, that was the place you want to go to see Karak and Hall. So that was the big thing. Phenomenal. And then they, they did not charge like, you know, $8 seats like the United States. Like they were like baseball ticket prices. Yeah. They were a little bit more expensive. I was able to use press credentials. So. I didn't have to pay, but awesome. that was nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plus, I think just being an American there, they didn't have a lot of Americans going through, so that, that helped. And, and Dave was there, too, and and that helped there, even though a uh, funny All Japan story is that when we got All Japan, they were kind of dicey on their whole relationship there, but they told, here's your seats, don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. We'll go sit in our seats, and we will not leave best promotion i actually had it it was tough for me because portland really had a good year believe it or not portland was absolute trash in like 87 88 but like 89 90 they made a little bit of a comeback ultimately i went with memphis and i know compared to wwf like memphis is very minor league but they had an enjoyable 90 minute show once a week and they figured out like how to get guys like Robert Fuller, Brian Lee, Brickhouse Brown, and you know guys that sometimes the WWF weren't interested in, and they made the television interesting with these guys. Oh, and of course Jerry Lawler. Yeah, I, I would totally understand that for sure. Uh, in, in when I saw when I would get Memphis tapes, it was always entertaining. Uh, yeah, they usually had something something different. A lot of it made sense. I mean, they had to, they had to, to survive. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you look at them in 1990, like they have to be asking themselves, okay, how much longer can we survive doing this? Is it still a sustainable business model? I mean, you can, you know, just have the TV and run five towns a week and have guys, you know, working for cheap, trying to get exposure. So it's not like it had to eventually go away. It just did. Yeah. All right. Uh, I say Memphis was fun, though. Yeah. I, I would and have you, no problem with that boat. You know what? I would binge on Memphis for like six months. And then it, it was almost, though, sometimes it was too much of the same thing. Like, you know, the TV was exciting, but how many run ins can you possibly watch <laughs> in the course of a year? I mean, they only had three <laughs> or four per show. Yeah, that's true. Very good point. All right. Plenty of candidates for worst on interviews. But, John, who was your pick? I mean, it's got to be Warrior, right? I mean, he, the dude was snorting on TV. <laughs> His interviews usually encompassed a lot of gibberish and snorting. So, I mean, you have to give him the vote, I think. Warrior is definitely on my list, but mine was the guy that I was just praising, Kerry Von Erich. Kerry okay. was getting just getting lazier and lazier, and you just couldn't help but suspect that there were times where Kerry was either groggy from the night before or just plain out of it. There, there's no other way to put it. I mean, it was especially earlier in the year when he was in USWA in Memphis. I mean, there, there were times where it's just like, okay, this guy just wake up. Come on. Yeah. 
Oh, for sure. It's like a different type of incoherency than Warrior, but it's a, it's, it's still mostly incoherent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can mean, see that. And you know, the thing is, if Warrior screws up, all right, take two. Like, Carrie couldn't do that on Memphis TV. You know, he'd just go oh. out there and make his mistakes, and we'd all laugh at him. Good point. Yeah, <laughs> you got to wonder what was on the cutting room floor in Connecticut, right? <laughs> That's a good point. Wow. All right, best on interviews. Who do you have? Uh, I went Terry Funk, and I can explain. Because he didn't have he didn't have a lot of work that year in front of a camera, but this was that November show we went to where he come out and he was treated like a legend because he is. Everybody's cheering for Terry Funk, and he got on a mic and did like three to five minutes and turned everyone against him in the house. It was it was oh, that was one of my favorite wrestling memories. Yes, for sure. And and he just you turned could, the whole place. He did. He sat there and said, you people are a bunch of losers, just like the Philadelphia Eagles, everyone from Philadelphia. And the, and the place, he went from that polite legends clap to everyone like just screaming at him. It was great. Yeah. Oh, it, it, I had to give it to him on that one. And I even, I think my comment in the Observer at the time was, hey, I understand he hasn't been doing this all year, but what I saw was like masterclass level stuff. Yes. And, and I had to give it to him because, I mean, he's he's the best. My best on interviews was his opponent on that night, Jerry the King Lawler. Uh, okay. Lawler has always been a great interview. He is employed today, 30 years later, because he's, he has that. He just has that gift. And he was a, a heel coming into 1990. He turned middle of the year and he was just so good. At both roles, being a heel and being a babyface. Here's a guy that the the NWA absolutely should have figured out a way to get him in there. Even if okay, Jerry, you know, your your free Saturday mornings and your free Mondays to go wrestle in Memphis, but we still need you here. There's a guy that would have been a good Black Scorpion. Yeah, good point. That might be the optimal choice if you think about it. How do we make it work? Even if even if you can only get Lawler for a couple months there, right? Yeah, or even if you just get him, look, I mean, okay, let's say Lawler is, I mean, they worked it out with the WWF in 1993. So you know you got you can work something out in 1990. And by the way, I know in like 89, he wanted to come in. So okay. you got to figure something out with Jerry Lawler. Even if you say, okay, you know, Jerry, you're here on TV. We need you for pay-per-views. After that, you know, you don't have to work the towns like everybody else. We know you've got your obligations in Memphis. Yeah, they should have tried to make something work there. It would have made it would have made a lot of sense. And and he would have been a help. It would have been definitely big for them. And, and to speak to Lawler too, I think one of the things that and this is like funk as well, some of the best of all time have the ability to think in the moment. Right? Yeah. So they they have their bullet points, I'm sure. Right. So they go out there and they know, and, and Dusty Rhodes would be the same way. And I see that in Cody Rhodes today, where you know that they've kind of got what they want in mind. They go out, but in the moment, they think they're not working from a script. It's coming from inside and they're, they're seizing a moment, thinking through it. And what they're saying is organic. They mm -hmm. master their surroundings. And this is like Funk in the ring. He masters the surroundings. I've seen so much stuff of Funk lately, just watching some of the older tapes where small things that occur inside he uses. And I think it's the same way when it comes to talking. People are out there, they've got their bullet points, but in the execution of their bullet points, new things come. And it just takes it to another level. And Lawler's like that. I think Funk's like that. Arn Anderson's like that. Cornette, obviously. Yep. I mean, some of the Those best guys talkers in the game. And, yeah. and you're right. That's the way they don't do it in the WWE. And I kind of used to, well, I, I guess I understand again, the USA Network is and uh, Fox is not going to be keen on having a pro wrestler go out there unscripted. But on the other hand, it doesn't work if you just hand someone a script. You have to give them their bullet points and say, okay, go out there and be yourself. You know, here's a list of things you, you can't, don't do. And you know, have the wrestlers bring out their personalities. And I think it sucks. They don't do that anymore. No, agree. Totally. And it goes back to the whole thing of acting, right? Is that an actor learns how to read lines and show emotion through it. 
if you're not a good actor, you're not going to be able to show the emotions through what you're saying. So if you give them a script, the emotion's not going to be there. However, if you give somebody the bullet points that they've got to hit on and you just say, go talk, they've got to fill in the blanks and they're more likely to fill them from emotion and pull that in and make it real. Yeah. And I know people who actually, you know, are involved in movie making out in Los Angeles. And I've been told that, you know, uh, some of the great lines that you see on, on, in a movie, they weren't on the script. The, the, the actor just kind of changed a word or two and did their own thing. And the producer said, okay, let's go with it. And wrestling should be more like that. Oh, I agree totally. Some, some improv to it is always good. I know you see some of these in cut movies at the end where they show these credit scenes and they show the same guy giving five different lines that they come up with and they're delivering them and they just pick the best one. Obviously, you can't do that in wrestling, but, but it's the same kind of concept of go with what you think you can come up with and you run with it. I know Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm, I think he works on that model of they've got the purpose of the scene in mind and the actors are filling in blanks. And that's exactly what wrestling should do. I agree totally on that one. That's, you know, that's I mean, how I would be doing it. I, I like the modern product. I don't like to complain about it. You know, obviously, I don't like it as much as I did in the 80s. But, you know, I, I think it would be a lot more interesting if you let, let the individual personalities shine. For sure. And, 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 you know, what comes out of that sometimes is unexpected things, you know, that you can capitalize on. Sometimes somebody just says something and you're like, oh, my God, that's great. Yeah, and they just I gave mean, you something to work with. We we were talking about earlier on the show, Ole Anderson. They had to come up with something last minute for Sting's turn, and Ole just went improv, and it was it was fantastic. Yeah, it, it's it's a lost art today in a lot of ways. That is all we have time for today. Me and John Muse will go over the second part of the 1990 Wrestling Awards next week. Thank you for listening. I hope everyone has a great week. I want to thank our producer, Lightning, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. And thank all of you for listening. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.